Welcome to the Intelligence Download, a podcast from BAE Systems. I'm Ben Tudor. We're here today in Barcelona at the Global Insurance Fraud Summit, and I'm joined by Ross Silverman of Katten Muchin Roseman LLP, and our own subject matter expert, Dennis Toomey, who's Head of Product for Insurance Fraud at BAE Systems. Ross, Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you both here. Um, very briefly, um, I'd like to understand, uh, Ross, your, your role in tackling insurance fraud and the role of your organization as well. Sure, sure. Um, so um, before I joined my current organization 25 years ago, I was a federal prosecutor, an assistant United States attorney in Chicago. Um, and in that uh, role, I had the opportunity to investigate and criminally prosecute organized fraud rings around the United States. What I realized back then is that, um, that law enforcement and the federal government had limited resources to address the problem. Um, so when I got into private practice 25 years ago and joined my current organization, which is the Catton Law Firm, um, we went out and uh, convinced insurance companies that if they really wanted to create a deterrent effect against organized fraud, they needed to do better at identifying uh, organized fraud rings they needed to be committed to not paying the claims of the organized fraud rings, to deter organized fraud rings from making those claims. And then what we really do is we, we help them evaluate whether criminal prosecution is a realistic option. If it is, we certainly support the criminal prosecution of people engaged in organized fraud. And if it's not, which is often the case because of the limited resources that law enforcement has, we bring civil lawsuits against uh, the people engaged in organized fraud. So over the last 25 years, we've probably brought over 100 fraud and racketeering lawsuits against people engaged in organized fraud around the country. And we do that because, it, in some cases, it's the only way to make those people stop committing the fraud because if you're not going to, if there's no consequence attached to the fraud, people aren't going to stop. Two, to deter them and others from continuing to engage in fraud against our clients. And three, to recover money that has been stolen from our clients. So that's what our organization has been doing successfully for the last 25 years. That sounds like a good job of effort. I suppose one question I'd ask off the back of that is what difference have you seen? Have you seen both forces and insurers behaving differently because of the activities you've undertaken about that? Absolutely. Um, and so what we have seen, and it's, um, it's just, it's, uh, the premise is evolution. So as we uh, get better, as our clients get better at identifying organized fraud, um, identifying the patterns, the links between claims, the trends in the, in the organized uh, fraud claims, and as we put in measures to avoid paying those claims and to, be, to put together the evidence to sue those people, they get better, and they uh, and they adjust their schemes to avoid our detection. And when they do that, then we have to adjust our detection techniques and our identification techniques. So it's evolved over time. But but the reason that it's become such a uh, industry in the United States and such an approach in the United States is because ultimately. Um, there are only two options. One is business as usual, which is essentially to pay fraudulent claims, which is 
what we call the death by a thousand cuts approach because that only encourages more fraudulent claims. Or you can do what we do, and what we see is um, when we actually catch them and we actually stop paying their claims and we actually sue the people who are primarily responsible for these rings, what we see is we see an impact on the frequency of fraudulent claims against our clients and their indemnity exposures. And you can actually measure the impact uh, once we've sued people um, in a very public forum for engaging in these schemes. You can see not only the effect on those people that they stop making the claims, but you can also see it in whatever jurisdiction you have to be in. You see a decline in those kinds of claims coming, uh, coming into our clients, uh, our insurance clients. A chilling effect on crime, effectively. Correct. It's the only way to create a deterrent. Um, what you have to do if you want to if you want to stop people from engaging in bad behavior, and if you don't create that deterrent, uh, it's only going to encourage more bad behavior, mm. because easy money is easy money, and people will always flock to easy money. It's it's almost like a. a in my mind, almost like the, the Special Investigations Unit's secret weapon. I mean, we can go out there, or the investigators can go out there and do an investigation and handle individuals' claims. But when you have an organization like Ross's that can go out there and, and pull hundreds of claims that go after the provider or, I guess, the drug dealer instead of the drug user to really have an impact, it's, it's very, it really has a significant um, precedent in the United States anyway about going after these bad guys and and when you publicize one of these things that are millions and millions of dollars you know it sends a message out to the fraudsters that are considering this or the organized group that it's going to be hard they're going to be, have a much more difficult time when you have an organization like Catnamuchin to go out there and, and defend the insurance companies and their their customers. Excellent. I suppose this there's almost three sides to this. You know, we've talked about the fraudsters, we've talked about the insurance companies, but there's also the honest, um, the honest consumer out there, and they're they're affected by insurance fraud as well. As you know, it's thought of as being a victimless crime, but actually we're all victims to a certain extent. Well, they're hugely affected by it because ultimately a lot of those costs get passed on to the consumers through higher premiums. It also distracts the insurance company's resources from being able to process the honest claims quickly because they're, you know, they're trying to figure out, is this an honest claim or is this a dishonest claim? So yeah, it has a big impact on, on consumers ultimately. And then if you think about the, uh, if you're doing a medical provider case, these medical providers that are ethically challenged or are, are in their whole intent is to steal money from the insurance companies, the last thing they want to do is actually apply medical practice to these people that could be injured and some of the techniques that they're doing could actually injure them more so it's not just about the money it's about the actual safety of the consumers too yeah I mean one of the one of the common schemes today is for uh, health care providers to provide treatment to people whether they need it or not the reason they provide the treatment is because they know they can get paid for it and that is a common scheme whether it's the health care wh whatever line of insurance you're in if it involves medical treatment medical bills disability uh, uh, auto, health, whatever the line of insurance is. So they'll actually provide the treatment, whether the people need it or not, because they know they'll get paid for it. And what that does is it gives people treatment that they don't need, but it also may um, avoid giving people treatment that they do need, because the treatment is dictated by what I'm going to get paid for, not what you need or don't need. So sometimes people get uh, treatment that they don't need, 
Other times people don't get treatment because that they do need, and it's because the provider really doesn't care what they need. The provider only cares about getting paid. So they've decided what treatment they're going to give to people before they walked in the door. And what we'll do is we'll take hundreds of claims or thousands of claims for, for a particular provider, and we'll identify patterns in their treatment that you wouldn't see in a random patient population, but you would see if a provider had designed his or her treatment to exploit a local claims environment to get paid, and will then bring a case against that provider. We'll say across 3,000 claims, everybody's got the same diagnosis, everybody's getting the same treatment. This can't be based on their true individual needs. It's designed to exploit an opportunity in the claims environment that you're in. Yeah, so a trend in the UK a few years ago for whiplash claims, fraudulent or otherwise, I'm, I'm guessing you're talking about the same thing. Here. Absolutely, that's a, and that's a major trend everywhere in the world, these crash for uh, cash claims. And uh, 25 years ago, the first case we brought for an insurance company when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office was a crash for cash case and, uh, and where people are deliberately causing automobile accidents so they can make uh, low-dollar uh, whiplash claims. And their theory is that, uh, that it, it will take, it'll be more expensive for the insurance company to defend those claims and avoid payment of those claims than simply just to pay those claims. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, they were right for a long time, and they're still right in many places around the world. So if you keep your, dial, your, your claim, uh, your soft tissue claim, low enough to keep it under the radar, the insurance companies would rather just pay those claims, maybe at a discount, mm -hmm. than to spend the money to try to avoid paying those claims and ultimately maybe have to pay those claims anyways. So what we would do in those cases is we would link uh, the, uh, the auto accidents that are being staged. We'd link the claims. Dennis is in one claim. He hits me one day. I hit him the next day. We both make soft tissue injury claims. We'd say both claims were fraudulent, and we're not paying either one. Yeah. Uh, so th that's, a, that's a big problem, though, around the world. From a carrier's point of view, I guess, as well, you know, one claim that you pay off on the basis that it's not worth fighting is not the same as maybe 30 claims that will start to add up, and actually that starts to become a, 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 right. a, a cost imperative. Really. Right, and if you pay the one, you'll pay 30, and they know that, so they'll make 30. And if you'll pay 30, they know you'll pay 100, so they'll make 100. So at some point, you have to figure out a way to make them stop. Uh, so you either have to try to avoid paying the individual claims and or you have to go after them uh, through our approach, which is let's sue them, let's expose them to the public, uh, what they're doing, let's make them stop making these claims, and let's recover the money they've stolen from us. Um, we talked a little bit about um, health insurance fraud, sure. um, and I, I suppose one question I've got is around the specific challenges that you face in the United States. Um, how would you say they differ from other countries around the world, for example, other regions? Um, I think with, with health care, and, and health care can happen in the health care line of insurance, it can happen in the auto injury line of insurance, so people have auto accidents and they get health, you get medical claims for injuries. Um, one of the big problems is the volume in the United States. You have 350 million people in the United States, so the, the volume of health care claims is massive. Um, the schemes, uh, the organized health care schemes, are, are targeted to the particular insurance companies and the particular 
uh, lines of insurance, particular jurisdictions. So there's a wide variety of schemes that are individually tailored to take advantage of uh, vulnerabilities with particular companies or particular jurisdictions. So you really have to understand the company, what they pay, what they don't pay, or the jurisdiction, what gets paid, what doesn't get paid, to identify the schemes that are tailored to exploit those weaknesses. So it can get complicated. The other thing that gets complicated with almost all of these schemes is that one of the, uh, the, the, the core premises for these schemes is that insurance companies can't beat us on a claim-by-claim -claim basis. So it's very difficult to deny an individual health care claim or an individual auto claim because it's basically the insurance company against the person and the doctor. So, uh, so it's very difficult to avoid paying those claims. So the claims just keep coming. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, okay, uh, can we identify people who are engaged in systemic behavior, take all of their claims, show the patterns in those claims to prove the fraud across all the claims to make these people stop? So it becomes more of an analysis and analytics problem. Well, data, technology, and this is where technology uh, plays a big part. And it is jurisdictional driven in the U.S., and I think that's probably the biggest problem between the coverages, from, speaking of auto, from a no-fault or personal injury protection. That's, a, that's probably the biggest um, and the hardest thing to fight in the U.S. right now. I think, you know, there's, that's, for the past 10 years anyway, it's been more of an issue, you know, in jurisdictional areas, Florida, New York, all the 12, personal, 12, right, mm -hmm. personal injury protection states. They have different coverages than other states. So, uh, you know, the investigators have to realign how they do work in those particular states to gather evidence and, you know, what's needed and the, the timely regulatory things that are driving each one of those jurisdictions has to be kept in mind. You know, and it's, it's, a, it's like a, a minefield that investigators in those areas have to worry about. And if you're a national director or someone, a fraud director or at the sea level, you have to keep all that in mind when you're trying to operate your business. Fantastic. I know we talked a little bit about um, some of the best practice that you've put into place over the last 25 years. Um, and um, I wonder if we could delve into that a little bit deeper. You've, sure. you've talked about, you know, rather than just allowing people to get away with it, going after them, suing them in a civil court if you can't get a criminal prosecution. Um, are there other um, regions where you've seen best practice or are there other best practices that you think we could really do with that in the States? Um, I think there's a lot going, in terms of best practices, um, there's best practices in terms of identifying the fraud mm -hmm quickly and accurately, okay? And uh, there's a ton of uh, uh, advances being made with technology. Um, there is a lot more data to work with these days. And being able to, um, I think best practices in terms of identification is really understanding where all the relevant data is, understanding what kind of technologies are available to take advantage of that data and then um, understanding how to use those technologies uh, to analyze the data to provide meaningful output. And meaningful output is not, hey, this looks different, or hey, this looks like it's bad. It's, hey, uh, uh, we've used this technology to analyze all this data, and based on that, here's what we see. 
And what we see is something that you can actually act on. That is, you can take this information and you can use it to either avoid payment of a claim or to sue the, the group of people who are driving uh, these, uh, you know, these fraud schemes. So it's actionable information. And those are, uh, there's a lot going on in that world. There's also a lot going on in terms of developing claims handling practices and really thinking about, am I using the most effective claims handling practices where I am? It doesn't matter if you're in New Delhi, if you're in Riyadh, if you're in Chicago, if you're wherever you are. There are certain things you can and can't do when you're handling a claim uh, to fairly handle the claim and to be able to put yourself in a position to avoid paying the claim if it's not owed. You need to understand what all of those uh, local opportunities are and then you need to make sure that you're using the best claims handling strategies available to you. And then, then beyond that, you, you have to understand, okay, beyond that, even if I'm effective at avoiding payment of the claims, what can I do beyond that to really attach a consequence for these people which is, can I develop uh, better, more effective relationships with law enforcement to promote criminal prosecution of these people? Or can I use civil litigation opportunities to really go after these people to make them stop and to recover the money they stole from me? Yeah, and in the different jurisdictions call for different practices. Absolutely. Right? City of London Police, for example, will pursue a criminal prosecution first and foremost. Absolutely. And even in the states, one state to the other. So what you can do in Chicago is, is different than what you can do in New York. And what you can do in New York is different than what you can do in Miami, Florida. So what you can do in different places really depends on the local claims and legal environment. Uh, and you, so you really have to understand what, you know, what's available to me and then you have to take full advantage of every opportunity. One of the things that we're going to talk about, and Ross and his partner, uh, Polly, is going to talk about in here is the actual uh, civil criminal prosecution in the UK, yeah. which yeah. is, I, I would consider it a best practice. It's really relatively new in the industry, and it's something that we're using to um, take advantage of the lack of resources we have to prosecute. Yeah, we're really um, very uh, excited about the one of the tools in, the, in, the, in England that isn't available um, in the U.S. is the ability of um, uh, companies, businesses, people to bring private criminal prosecutions mm -hmm. against uh, people who are committing or have committed crimes against them. So if law enforcement won't, uh, won't prosecute the case and you're an insurance company and you've been victimized by a fraud, you can bring your own private criminal prosecution and the remedies include the same remedies that a criminal prosecution would, which would include uh, custodial sentences, compensation for your losses, uh, fines, and attorney's fees. Um, so, uh, because really that's what fraud is. Fraud really is, it's criminal wherever, wherever you are. Uh, every place has crime. Every place has, you know, criminalizes fraud, says you can't commit fraud. If you do, it's a crime. So when we're bringing civil suits based on fraud, what we're essentially alleging is you've committed fraud against us, we're suing you civilly, but uh, quite frankly, what you've done is criminal. Okay. Fascinating. I suppose two questions then to wrap things up. Um, what do you see as um, a real positive looking into the future? Um, 
in terms of the way the industry perhaps is fighting back? And what do you see as the greatest challenge? I think the real positive is awareness, uh, that, um, that, that the awareness of the industry around the world has um, grown substantially uh, and the willingness or the readiness to address the problem, which I think in part is being forced by competition among insurance companies, the, uh, the limitations on their ability to uh, pass those costs on to consumers, and, and that the fraud is growing. So this is a big problem that's getting bigger that they need to deal with, and they are. So it's really exciting to see what's happening around the world both within the industry and the industry reaching out and liaisoning with law enforcement and consortia of other insurance companies, working with technology companies to figure out what technologies can take advantage of all the data that's out there for us so that we can identify this stuff quicker and better and then be able to uh, develop strategies that are going to help us uh, beat these people, avoid paying these people, and making them stop their fraudulent behaviors. And that, that's something I'm excited about. Yeah, because it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about you know, one of the, 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 the ways that you've helped in the past is to identify patterns of behavior yeah. and, and patterns in the data itself. That the potential with new technologies involved is going to be quite significant. I mean. Yeah, and, and you need that because the patterns evolve. As, as they understand that you've figured out one pattern, they're going to make adjustments to that pattern, and that's where you need technology uh, to be help you identify, oh, there's been an adjustment here in their behavior. There's a new pattern now. Okay, we need to train our technology. We need to train our people to identify claims fitting this new pattern now, and then we need to be able to respond to it with the kind of strategies that we were talking about, claims handling and litigation or criminal prosecution. We talked in the past about it being a bit of a truism. Um, that it's easier to spot opportunistic fraud than it is organized fraud. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Um, I, I don't see that, well, I don't, I don't see that changing so much. Opportunistic mm -hmm. fraud, there's a lot of it, there's always going to be a lot of it. Here's my deal with opportunistic fraud, <laughs> that if you accept my premise that there's always going to be a lot of it, um, then you have to say, I've got limited resources. So where am I going to allocate my resources? Am I going to allocate my resources to deal with the opportunistic fraud, or am I going to allocate my resources to deal with the organized fraud? And it's not a binary decision. It's not one or the other. It's how much of my resources am I going to allocate to both places? And the problem with addressing opportunistic fraud is it can um, exhaust all of your resources very quickly because it's very difficult to deal with someone who has a legitimate accident, for example, mm -hmm. and is maybe saying their, their, their neck hurts more than it does, but it's a one-off claim. Mm -hmm. You can spend a lot of time, a lot of resources on that. Or you can take some of those resources and say, okay, I'm going to rely on my claims handlers, my general claims handlers, to deal with and try to avoid paying more than they owe for the opportunistic fraudsters. And I'm going to allocate a substantial part of my resources to really identify the rings of people or the people who are engaged in systemic fraud mm -hmm. because they're driving a lot of fraud and if I can use my resources to put them out of business I'll have a far greater impact than the impact I will if I allocate all those resources to just opportunistic fraud. 
And I guess there's different tactics as well. You know, you, you do want to smash an organised crime ring by taking them to court. It may be you might want to make it socially unacceptable to, to commit an opportunistic fraud to inflate your claim, for example. You do. That, that's a challenge to me. <laughs> and, and just being real. Yeah. Just being real. It's a real, it's a, it's a big challenge. So there's only, that's not to say people shouldn't be dealing with opportunistic fraud. Every company should. But our focus is really on, okay, that's, that's the business of insurance. Claims handlers ought to be able to deal with the opportunistic fraud. You know, let's focus on, I call it the bees versus the hives. Mm-hmm. You can swat at bees all day long. Those are the individual claims, the opportunistic. Yeah. But when you spot a few hives back, back there behind that, you know, flurry of bees, let's take out the hives and get rid of a lot of bees with one fell swoop. So that's one, that's another way to think of it. Yeah, they do overlap. So I, th- I don't think you can silo just opportunistic and just organized fraud because mm-hmm. these hives and these the queen bee in those hives is actually allowing these opportunistic claims to actually happen. So if if we like you said you eliminate the hive, you eliminate a lot of the bees. So I think it's a it's a good point, and, and it's very evolutionary the way that it's gone. So mm-hmm. people are starting to understand how insurance is done, and they're taking advantage of that. So our our techniques and the technology is also evolving, and the bad guys are evolving, and so are we. So I think it's a a really interesting time in our industry right now. And we also know where the bees have gone. It's all the fault of a Chicago law firm. Yeah, right, (laughs) Okay, well, uh, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very much, Ben. Many thanks for joining us here in Barcelona at the Global Insurance Fraud Summit. If you'd like to hear and read more on this topic, go to basystems.com forward slash insurance insights. Many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download and don't forget to subscribe via iTunes, Podbean or your favorite podcast app. Mm-hmm.